0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Good. That was a little bit more lively than first service, so we're already moving and grooving. Uh, Well, uh, first thing I'd like to say is uh, thank you to Grace. She came and led worship for us. Uh, She's uh, Cliff and Sherry's daughter from Charleston, so uh, thank you to her for coming and leading worship this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Give her a round of applause. Uh, And then second thing, uh, Joseph this morning, uh, he's in Kentucky. Um, Some of you may know his mom is celebrating a 90th birthday here soon, and so they uh, went up to Kentucky to celebrate with their family, and so they're up there. So uh, I would just encourage you to pray for them while they're up there, their safety, and on the way back. Um, And so we're going to be finishing up the series that he's been in uh, throughout the summer, uh, summer old school. And this morning we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your phone or tablet to the book of Nehemiah, we'll be starting in chapter one this morning. Something about me. I always like to tell you a little bit about me, where I'm at, and uh, when I start teaching. So one of the things that I have discovered about myself um, is I have started becoming a uh, movie buff or quote-unquote film snob here recently. Um, I think a large part of it has to do with uh, my best friend, Austin. He's actually here this morning. Um, Austin is an aspiring director, um, and we always sit and talk when he comes over. We hang out. We talk about movies. We talk about uh, the, the new movies that are coming out, or movies that I haven't seen because uh, I'm lame and I don't see all the cool movies. So we sit there and we talk about it. We talk about the acting and the directing, script writing, scenes, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, another reason why I feel like I've become such a movie buff person is because when I was at North Greenville, uh, I did uh, stuff in media, and so I could tell when they're doing a specific type of thing with the camera, a certain angle shot, all that kind of stuff, and it just really intrigues me, uh, it gets me uh, like focused in on it, and I I want to understand how they do it and kind of see it from their perspective. And so one of my uh, most favorite movies um, that I've I've ever watched is this old movie from 2005 called Facing the Giants. Most of you in this room have probably seen this movie. This is a Christian uh, movie. And um, it, is, it is my favorite movie, and I'll tell you why. It's not for the top-tier actors. It's not for the incredible script writing or the uh, amazingly well-done cinematography. Now, the reason this movie is by far one of my favorites is because it pushed the bounds of what Christian film could be. Uh, before this movie came out, there were a lot of... Uh, low-budget Christian films that just honestly really weren't that good. I mean, the storyline was, was good, it was okay, um, but it just wasn't really well done, and so Christian movies were kind of struggling. This movie came out in 2005, and it pushed the boundaries for what Christian film could be. Because of this movie, we got films like Courageous, War Room, God's Not Dead, I Can Only Imagine, and the most recent one, Jesus Revolution. It really defined what a Christian film could be, and um, it, it's, it, it's just such a good movie. And it, it ties in with what we're talking about this morning. Um, there is, uh, it's about a uh, Christian high school football team. Um, the coach has a, a losing record, and he redefines what the team is and what winning is in the eyes of the players as a Christian. And one of the scenes that uh, goes along with today's message is he starts breaking down the book of Nehemiah and teaching it and says that Nehemiah led the rebuilding of a stone wall. And he equates that to the defensive line and says, if you become strong together and form a line like a stone wall, nothing will get by you as an individual and nothing will get by you as a team. And so he really reinforces this picture of what the, def- uh, the defensive line needs to be. And so they end up doing really well in the season because they've turned the team around and they find themselves in the state championship where they never thought they'd be. And it comes to a point where there is a crucial set of four downs that the defense needs to stop and keep the offense from scoring. And one of the main characters, his name is Brock, he starts running back up and behind. He's a linebacker, and so he's running back behind the defensive line. He's chanting, stonewall, stonewall, stonewall. And the defense holds those crucial four downs. And it's a turning point for the team to where they can ultimately go on and win the game. They win the championship. So this is Brock on the right. This is when he was in um, the movie. And then this is him on the left. His name uh, is Jason McLeod. He is now a youth pastor at a church in North Carolina called Life Community Church. And uh, really cool. Last year, I had the opportunity to meet him. Uh, It was awesome. And... uh, to answer your question, this picture is not photoshopped, I did not use AI, this is a real picture, okay, I got asked that after first service, is this actually real? I was like, yes, um, I got to meet a famous guy, okay, this is awesome, um, but he's really cool dude, um, we've kind of connected here and there ever since we met him, and it was just really, really awesome to get to meet him. And um, it, it was just, it was really incredible. But the, the story of Nehemiah is just as incredible. It's, it's amazing. It's the impossible getting done. And so we're going to talk about Nehemiah and the impossible getting done. But before we can do that, we have to understand the backstory of where we're at in Scripture. So uh, where we are is um, in a time... Uh, about 500 BC, and we are at a point where the kingdom of Israel has split. There are now two kingdoms. And so what we can see here is that uh, there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And what happens is now that the kingdom is divided, this allows for attack from outside Now, if we know anything about the Israelites, all throughout the Old Testament, you read they follow God, and then they come across something that is more appealing to them, and they follow that, and then God sends a prophet, and the prophet kind of tells them, hey, you need to get back right with God, or there's going to be destruction, and they come back for a little bit. And then they fall off again. And this is a reoccurring cycle that happens throughout the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And the same message is true through every prophet. Get back right with God, or there will be destruction that comes. Judgment that comes. And we're at a point in the story where God sends his judgment. And we see this in 2 Kings Chapters 24 through 25. We don't have uh, time this morning to read all of 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, but we'll read a little bit. This comes from chapter 24 in the very beginning. It says During Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked. Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, and then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent Chaldean, Armenian, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim. He sent the he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through his servants the prophets. And so here we see that the Lord punished Israel for their disobedience and for turning their back on God. And so after this attack on uh, the the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed, it's left in ruins, and the Babylonian Empire takes the children of Israel into captivity. And if that were the end of the story, it would be an incredibly sad ending. Because we all know that God is gracious, God is merciful, He's loving. And this, if this was the end... This is not gracious, this is not loving, and this is not merciful. And so if this were the end, it'd be incredibly, incredibly sad. However, it's not the end of the story. What we see is that 50 years after the attack, the initial attack of Babylon against Jerusalem, uh, the Babylonian Empire now is uh, under the rule and dominion of the Persian Empire. So, one great kingdom attacks and sets up its kingdom, and then just like that, it's conquered by some other empire. And where we find ourselves in the story is 50 years later, after the initial attack of Jerusalem, we see this guy named Zerubbabel. That's a really fun name to say, Zerubbabel. Um, and Zerubbabel gets uh, permission from the king to lead a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In the initial attack of Babylon, the the, the whole city was decimated. The, The temple was destroyed and the city was left in ruin. But Zerubbabel leads a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And this fulfills a promise made by God in Jeremiah chapter 29. Now most of us are pretty uh, familiar with Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. Uh, Some of you might even say that it's your life verse. Uh, The version you may have memorized is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans uh, to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. And While this is true, it's a great verse. If we look at it in context of where it falls in the story, it actually holds a lot more weight. Let's look at Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 11. It says, For this is what the Lord says, When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And so what we see here is through God talking to the people, basically what he's saying is, listen, I know that this seems like nothing good is going to come from this. You're in a bad place right now, and it seems like there is no good, nowhere to turn, but that's not the case. I know that when I pull you through this, you're going to be better and you're going to be stronger than you were before. And it's really encouraging because this is God talking to the Israelites, his chosen people who are held in captivity, who can't see the future and can't see a way out of where they are currently. And if God says that about his people then, then we know 100% for certain that he says that about us today. He knows what's best for us and he's going to give us the exact same thing that he promised to his children and so after Zerubbabel leads this group of Israelites back to rebuild the temple there enters another guy onto the scene 60 years later named Ezra and Ezra also gets permission from the king. This is a different king at the time, but he gets permission from the king to go back to Israel. And when uh, Ezra gets back to uh, Jerusalem, he reteaches the first five books of the Old Testament, what's known as the Torah or the law, the Pentateuch. He reteaches that to the Israelites, helps them relearn what they, what they went through as a history of their people and that God was through everything that they went through. And then after he teaches that, he goes back and starts rebuilding the community, revitalizing it, restoring it to what it was before the destruction. And then enters Nehemiah into the story. And Nehemiah... We see, goes back and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. So we we see the rebuilding of the temple, we see the rebuilding of the community, and now we're going to see the rebuilding of the wall. And so, uh, As we're focusing on that, we're going to start in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And this is how the book of Nehemiah opens up. It gets right into it. It doesn't pause. It doesn't introduce who Nehemiah is until the end of chapter 1. It just goes straight into the story. And so Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says this, "...during the month of Chislev in the twentieth year when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile." So Nehemiah's just casually hanging out, and his brother comes to him, and he's like, hey, what's, what's going on? How are things in Jerusalem?" And his brother is distraught and saddened. And this is what he says in response. The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. And, you know, we kind of read that and we're like, okay, the walls have been destroyed, the gates have been destroyed, okay, cool. And we don't really feel... The, the emotion that is actually in the story, and I want, us to th- I want us to think about this for a second because walls create structure, they create some, uh, safety in, in the time of this story. And so there was this American uh, psychologist by the name of Dr. Maslow, and he came up with this little pyramid thing. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, and this is what it looks like. And it has three different tiers. You have your basic needs, your psychological needs, and your self-fulfillment needs. And I want to focus on the first two layers of this pyramid, your basic needs. The first one is your food, water, warmth, and rest. So Dr. Maslow is saying, this is what every human, the very most basic, minimalist thing a human needs. I'd say he's pretty right, because when I get hungry, I get cranky. I get hangry. When I get tired, I get grouchy. I need a nap. So all of these things that he says that every human needs, it's pretty true. We all need food, water, warmth, and rest. But look at the second level safety needs security and safety security and safety so i want you to think about it this way almost all of us in this room have some sort of safety feature in our home whether that be a uh, lock on your door a security system some of you may have um, other means of security in your home but we all have a way that when we go to bed at night we have some sort of uh, sense of safety because we lock something or turn something on that keeps everything out. But I want you to think of it this way. I want you to think of if none of that existed. You come home from work, there's no uh, security system, there's no knob or lock on your door, there's no door at all. Okay, I want you to think about that. You come home, you walk directly into your house. Would you be able to sleep at night knowing that there is nothing keeping out the rest of the world from your house? Absolutely not. It's a very unnerving and unsettling feeling. You wouldn't be able to sit on your couch without constantly looking over your shoulder making sure there's nobody else. You would feel very weird if somebody just walked into your house that you had no idea who they were because you didn't have a door and a lock keeping people out. That's the way that the people of Israel felt. The wall of Jerusalem kept out the rest of the world. It kept out uh, the neighboring nations. It kept out raiders and plunderers from the city. It was their security feature. It was what made them feel safe, and they didn't have it. And so because of this wall being destroyed, They felt disgraced and shameful. They had no way of keeping anything else out. But what we see through Nehemiah is that God had a plan, and God had someone to execute that plan. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah's task. He had an impossible task ahead of him. To rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so with any construction project, for those of you who work construction or know how construction works, there are certain steps. You build the foundation of the house first before you build the roof. You don't build a roof if there's no foundation doesn't make sense. You have certain steps that you follow, and in this case, there are steps, and we're going to look at those. So the first step to rebuilding is recognizing the brokenness. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 3 through 4, this is after his encounter with his brother, he said, they said to me, the remnant and the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept, I mourned for a number of days fasting and praying before the God of the heavens so nehemiah 's first thing after he hears this, he falls down and he weeps. Now most of us read that word in the Bible he wept or she wept, and we 're thinking, okay, he cried, shed some tears, right um, the, the, the word weeping is not just, you know, you, you shed a few tears and you're a little upset and that's it. No, I want you to picture uh, what you look like when you're ugly crying, okay? That's weeping, you know, tears gushing down your face, you can't breathe, you're over here. <laughs> you got snot running out your nose. I mean, it's just not a pretty picture. It's ugly crying, okay? It's ugly crying. This is what weeping is, and this is what Nehemiah does, He falls down and he weeps. And now you may be asking the question, why is he weeping this way if he is in uh, in Babylon? He's not even in Jerusalem. Why is he weeping? Well, the reason that he is weeping is because he had a great God-given passion for his people and the suffering that they were going through. He was miles and miles away, and yet he felt their pain and their shame that they were feeling. You see, even uh, as followers of Christ, at some point in our life, we have to deal with uh, uncertainty, lack of accomplishment, and other things that make us feel that we have no walls or structure in our life. We've all been in that boat. We've all been in that place. And this is where Nehemiah finds himself. And so, just as Nehemiah is burdened about his people and the brokenness that they are are going through, that should move us to feel a sense of brokenness for the state of the world that we live in. We're constantly seeing the brokenness of a fallen world And the question is, are we being moved just as much as Nehemiah was moved? We should be moved by the brokenness around us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And you see, it's very important in this case to understand and acknowledge that rebuilding starts with an honest assessment of our lives and desire for restoration. not only did he fall and did he weep, but the second thing that he did, the second step, is to pray and seek God's guidance. In verses uh, 6 through 7, he says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. So Nehemiah is crying and he's pouring out his heart and he's confessing all the sins, not only his sins, his father's sins, his father's before him sins. And he goes on and on and on. And the rest of chapter 1, before you get to chapter 2, is a prayer. An earnest and honest, heartfelt pouring out prayer, asking for forgiveness and seeking God's guidance. This was his immediate response, was to turn to God in prayer. You see, the thing about prayer is it gives you perspective, and it gives you clarity. It gives us an opportunity to be assured that we are moving by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by our own desires. You see, for most of us, when something doesn't go our way, we try to fix it right then, right there. And most of the time, we can't fix it on our own. There's no way we ever could. We have to rely on God's help to fix it. And so, like Nehemiah, our first step in any endeavor should be seeking God's guidance through prayer. You see, prayer aligns our hearts with God's will and opens the door for divine intervention in our lives. And that is exactly what Nehemiah was seeking. He wanted God's will to be for him somehow, some way to restore the wall. He wanted God to help his people feel a sense of safety and security. And what Nehemiah doesn't know at that point, but he witnesses here in a moment, is the fact that God had already been working this into motion. He had been working this to motion. We're going to move to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, During the month of Nisan, in the 20th, uh, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why do you look so sad? when you aren't sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. So we need to understand Nehemiah's position in this part of the story. Nehemiah holds the job and the title of cupbearer to the king of Persia. This is a really big responsibility. You want to know why? It was the cupbearer's job to make sure that the food and the drink had not been poisoned. Okay? Kings, they were kind of uh, a little nervous about always uh, being on the lookout for somebody trying to kill them. And so they established people in their court and in their presence that would make sure that they wouldn't die. So Nehemiah found himself in the position of cupbearer. That is not a job I want to do. I don't want to taste somebody's food and drink to make sure that it's not poisoned because there will uh, inevitably come a day when it is poisoned. And then that's my end. He died tasting the king's food. That's not a really cool way to go out. Uh, I, I would not want to go out that way. And so me personally, I would not choose this. But what we see in the story is God puts him in a position, puts Nehemiah in a position that is incredibly close to the king. He gets to know the king so So well. And when we look back at this verse, it says, uh, I had never been sad in his presence. One of the requirements was you couldn't be sad. You had to always be happy no matter what was going on. There were some other requirements of like you had to be good looking and all this kind of stuff, but now this is the one that they focus on. You can't be sad. And notice, he's sad. And the king asks him, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, most kings would have been like, okay, he said, get him out of here. I can't have anybody bringing me down. But instead, the king pauses, and he takes a moment, and he asks him what's bothering him. And so, Nehemiah is in this incredible position to make something happen. And so... I want us to look at Nehemiah's response to the king's question because it's kind of interesting. It kind of comes off aggressive and kind of like he's snapping at the king. It's really interesting to address the king that way. But he goes on and he says, I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. That's what you say. You know, always address the king, may the king live forever. Um, why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It kind of feels like he's snapping at the king. Like, why, why can't I be sad? Are you telling me I'm not allowed to be sad here? kind of what it feels like. And, you know, first off, being sad in the king's presence would have automatically gotten somebody removed from the king's presence. But a response like this, man, some kings would have been like, all right, I'm done with him, off with his head, right? I mean, you just have, most kings didn't have tolerance for this kind of stuff. But despite his response... Again, we see God moving through the story, and the king's response is something that I don't think Nehemiah expected to happen. The king responds, what is your request? He's basically saying, all right, so what do you want to do? You're coming to me with this. What do you want to do? And I really believe that in this instance, Nehemiah is shocked because in his response to the king, he kind of starts backpedaling a little bit. He kind of starts taking a step back and kind of examining things. And this is what he says. So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king, that's the first thing he says. He's not snapping. He's like, okay, I'm going to take a step back. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. And what's really incredible is we've already seen that God is moving and has changed the king's heart, but he moves it even further to the point of where the king says, Go. But he also gives Nehemiah an armed escort back to Jerusalem. And then on top of the armed escort, he allows him to take Israelites that had been in captivity back to the city. And then on top of the Israelites coming back from captivity, he also provides him with supplies that he needs such as timber and wood to rebuild the gates. So not only does he allow the, the uh, Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem, but he gives him Everything that he needs to have a successful mission, a successful trip to rebuild the wall. And so it was Nehemiah's deep faith in God that gave him the ability to confront the king. But it was also God's putting him in this position to get close enough to the king to make this request. And God was listening to Nehemiah And opened the heart of the king to hear his plea. And so he had help from God to achieve this impossible task. And not only did he have help from God, but he had help also from the people of Israel. And so the third step in rebuilding is unity and collaboration. And so Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and he says, Uh, You see, the trouble we are in, Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. Now, we see this, and this is great, but before this, it's really, it's really funny. So uh, Nehemiah arrives to Jerusalem, and the, night that he, or the day that he gets there, he waits until night when everyone's asleep. He gets on a donkey, and he rides around the city. And he assesses the damage, and he assesses what needs to be done. And then he goes to the people with a plan of action. Now, these people, when he was first when we first introduced to Nehemiah, they said uh, that they were uh, disgraced, they were in shame, they were discouraged because the wall had been destroyed. And so these are kind of people that I feel like they're kind of walking around in the city, kind of moping, not really uh, feeling alive because they're always looking over their shoulder, looking behind their back. And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that when he goes to the people, this is their response. They said, let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this work. And it's just so incredible. People who had been sad and discouraged suddenly muster up the strength, find their motivation to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah didn't rebuild the wall alone. He rallied the people of Jerusalem to join The cause, the entire community, the priests, nobles, common laborers, they all worked together with a shared vision and purpose. And you see, Nehemiah was able to discern the proper time to present the building project. And he knew how to motivate the leaders and the people. He gave them four incentives. Four incentives. Let's look at those. Firstly, he identified with the people. It's really important. He spoke of the trouble we are in. He didn't say, you guys are in a whole lot of trouble and I don't know how we're going to fix this problem. No. He came across and he said, we are in trouble. He identified himself with the people. The second thing that he did is he stressed the seriousness of the situation. He didn't just be like, okay, the wall, yeah, it's destroyed, but it's not that big of a deal. You no, know, he came to the people and he said, this is a task, this is a job. And he as a leader had to be realistic and honestly assess the facts. And that's what he did. He stressed the seriousness of the situation. The third thing he did is that he was committed to taking definitive action. He knew exactly what needed to be done and how it needed to be done, and he told the people what needed to be done. And fourthly, he used his personal testimony of God's grace to assure them of God's favor on the rebuilding of the wall. And so these four incentives, they encouraged the people, they found their motivation, and they rallied together And they started this project. Their unity made the rebuilding process possible. And what's super awesome about this story is this was an impossible, impossible, impossible task for one person to do on their own. But Nehemiah rallied these people, the people of Jerusalem. And they rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem in just 52 days. 52 days. That's pretty quick turnaround time. Um, If you drive anywhere in Greer or Greenville or Spartanburg and you see construction, I guarantee you it's not going to take 52 days. Um, There's no way it's going to happen. But for the people of Jerusalem, they moved with a desire and a motivation to get it done. And it was finished in just 52 days. You see, Nehemiah knew that God would give them success because he had sought God's will and allowed him to bring him to a point of complete brokenness for his people. And you see, what's awesome and so incredible is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things extraordinary things. He understood that it was God's heart and God's plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If it would have been Nehemiah's own personal dream and plan, then it would have failed. But because it was God's plan, they had guaranteed success. The question that we have to ask ourselves at this point in the story is, will we be obedient to God and accomplish what He desires for our life? Because, you see, if you read on to the end of Nehemiah, it's a pretty anticlimactic ending, which means it doesn't end the way you think it would. You had three great leaders come through. You had Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and they did all incredible things In God's name for God and for the people of of Jerusalem. But when you read to the end of Nehemiah, it ends in a way that just feels wrong. Zerubbabel came and he established and rebuilt the temple just the way that it had been built the first time. But the first time the temple had been built under Solomon, they had a dedication ceremony. And during that ceremony, the Spirit of God fell and descended into the temple and filled the temple. And you knew, and the Israelites ex- experienced and witnessed the Spirit of God in the temple. But when you come to Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple, and they dedicate it, Spirit of God doesn't fall this time. When Ezra comes and teaches the, the law and what you're supposed to do, Nehemiah, after, after he's finished the wall and they've, they've finished their celebrations and everything, he goes around the city and he sees people breaking the law. He sees people working on the Sabbath and doing things that they're not supposed to. And so what all this leads to is God ushering the next phase? What he's saying to the people is, you have rebuilt these things and you have redone these things, but the thing that has not changed at all is your heart. You recognize the destruction of the temple, you recognize the destruction of your community, and you recognize the destruction of your wall, but you haven't recognized the brokenness that lies inside of you, your heart. And then what God ushers in next is the coming of Christ. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You see, just like back then with the Israelites in Jerusalem and rebuilding the city walls, They had somebody to come and lead them and lead the construction efforts and had a plan to fix the brokenness. We have somebody now that comes into our lives and can fix our brokenness, the brokenness that God was alluding to in saying that your heart hasn't changed. And so Jesus, we have to understand that Jesus is our builder. Jesus is our fixer. Jesus is our restorer. But there are a few things that we need to see first. First, just like Nehemiah realized that the walls were broken, we must realize what is broken in our lives. Then and only then will Jesus be able to help fix the brokenness that lies within us. Secondly, we must pray and ask Him for help in fixing the brokenness in our lives. And lastly, we must follow His leadership in and on our lives. Because you see, that's the ultimate reason why Jesus came, was to fix our internal brokenness. To fix what we couldn't fix on our own. And even though that the temple had been rebuilt and the city had been restored and the walls had been fixed, there was still a brokenness in the city of Jerusalem that hadn't been fixed. And Jesus is the one who fixes that brokenness for us. And so I pray that as we have learned about Nehemiah, that we will realize and we will see the brokenness. We will recognize it in our own life. The things that we need to confess, the things that we need to give over to God. And that we will pray and ask him for his help and follow his leadership in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the cool air that we've had the past few mornings. It has been wonderful and refreshing. God, I pray and thank you that uh, Nehemiah paints such a picture that we can look to and realize that there are steps in rebuilding the brokenness in our lives and that we need to look to you to fix that brokenness. So I pray that as we go this week, you will identify those problems in our lives and we will be able to recognize the things that need to be fixed and that we will rely on you to fix them. It's in your name I pray. Amen.